Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. I'm so glad you're all early. We have a, you know, a Navy man who's in charge of us, and so we know that we have to be early and never late. So here we are. I'm Karen Ryan, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Human Rights here at the Carter Center. I'm very happy to welcome you here to our Conversations at the Carter Center event. The Conversations series gives us an opportunity to discuss important issues with our neighbors here in Atlanta and through our webcast with our friends around the world. We encourage you to learn more about our upcoming Conversations events and also watch past events at cartercenter.org conversations. I'd like to extend a special welcome tonight to all of our ambassadors and Legacy Circle guests that are here with us. Very, very welcome to you. And I'd also like to extend an extra welcome to our Board of Trustees and our Board of Counselor members. We are really blessed at the Carter Center to have you as part of our team. And before we begin, I'd like to invite those of you in the audience who have questions for the panel to write them down on the index cards that have been placed in your seats, and volunteers will move through the aisles around 7.15 to collect them. Those of you watching the webcast, feel free to submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag beyondviolence. Now um, is my opportunity to introduce our wonderful, wonderful panel. We have been in, this is our fourth day of conversations literally, for four days. Um, and we have other members of our, of our group that were with us for four days here in the audience, and it was an amazing discussion. And you're going to get just a little taste of it right here tonight. Of course, I will first in- introduce President Carter. He is our Commander-in-Chief, and he was once this nation's Commander-in-Chief who made human rights the center of his foreign policy which has had ripple effects throughout the world for decades. And when we have our Human Rights Defenders Forum here, every time when people who are risking their lives to advance democracy and human rights in their own countries come here, time after time after time, what they tell us is that his voice mattered. Time after time, I have people tell me he personally saved their lives, got their father out of prison, something like that. There's too many stories to, na- to number. Um, so our, uh, our, our leader here in human rights, and we are so pleased to have him here. Aisha Osori is a lawyer, writer, and a gender advocate with degrees from Harvard Law School and Kennedy School of Government. She is the CEO of the Nigerian Women's Trust Fund, a nonprofit organization focused on increasing the quality and quantity, quality and quantity of gender representation. She believes that in order to end violent extremism, violence against women and promote peace, we need to spend more time focused on good governance, human rights, strengthening institutions, and changing the narrative around women, power, and religion. Senam Anderlini is a co-founder of the International Civil Society Action Network, She has nearly two decades of working all around the world on supporting and promoting women's inclusion (coughs) in peacemaking in war-affected countries. 
She was awarded the UN Association's 2014 Perdita Houston Award for Human Rights. She's the author of the book, Women Building Peace, What They Do and Why It Matters. She's Iranian by birth and the mother of of identical 14-year-old twins. And you might recognize her because she was a guest on our last conversations panel when Ambassador Marianne Peters moderated another conversation about women in peace. So we had to have her back. She was that good. Um, Dr. Ala Morabit is a physician and founder of the Voice of Libyan Women and is a firm believer in inclusive peace and collective security. Her work has resulted in legislative and social change in Libya and the MENA region, which is Middle East and North Africa region. Her selection as the first Ashoka Fellow in Libya and her appointment as advisor to numerous international institutions and the UN. So we are really honored to have such a stellar cast to talk about our subject tonight. And our subject tonight is about women and peace. We are in a a time, in in an age, where there is insecurity, there is fear, there is a rise of extremism, there is a rise of a fear of conflict. And what we really wanted to do in this year, where the UN is revisiting a resolution that they passed 15 years ago, that it's called 1325, and it called for women to be included in all peace negotiations. And you heard about that if you attended our last conversation. Sanam Underlini was one of those who helped craft Resolution 1325. And we wanted to use this opportunity to look at women and peace, not just as victims of war and victims of violence, but as agents of peace, agents of change, agents of long-term vision that we need to avoid war. And that's what we have been talking about for the last four days, is how the violation of women's rights, which is so pervasive and which President Carter wrote about in his latest book, from female infanticide to genital cutting and honor killing and assault on college campuses, sexual assault in the military, he has really raised a level of awareness of the suffering of women. So we wanted to do two things, really. President Carter has given us a chance to look at the suffering that's happening and to face it. There was a song that was performed yesterday morning, and it said, no more changing the subject, no more injustice, no more changing the subject. It's time to face this. And in interviews this week, President Carter has been saying that violence against women is the same thing as torture, and we must not allow it to continue. So how do we, at the same time as we are treating this emergency of violence against women, also think in the long term and start creating a new vision that takes us beyond violence? Because violence doesn't solve anything. Sometimes you need police action or military, but it really doesn't solve anything. It doesn't get us to solutions. So that's what we're here to to talk about tonight. So first I'd like to turn to President Carter and to give you a chance to talk about the conversations that we've had this, this, these two days? And how do you see these two things that we have to do, both address the suffering, which we're not doing adequately. We don't have the resources to make sure that all the girls are educated, that all of the suffering is cared for. But how do we all, at the same time, 
set our sights on a far vision on the horizon where we can actually think about solving our problems without violence. Well, as a token man on the stage, <clears throat> uh, I might say that I've been pleased and honored this week to uh, participate once again in a conversation at the Carter Center or conference at the Carter Center or, or a meeting at the Carter Center of uh, human rights heroes. These are people who come from this, this week, 20 different countries, from Afghanistan and Libya and Syria, from Iraq, from Indonesia, from Malaysia, who have experienced probably all their lives in their own local community deprivation of basic human rights and sometimes direct oppression and persecution just because they were girls. And they're lucky in many countries to have survived their birth. In the world today, there are 160 million girls missing from the face of the earth who have been strangled by their parents at birth. Or more recently with sonograms where the parents can decide that the fetus is going to be female, they abort the child. These statistics are very easy to ascertain. If you go and look at the statistics in China about boys versus girls, for every 100 girls, there are 118 boys. Where are the 18 girls? If you go to India, which also has restrictions on the size of a family, there are 112 boys to every 100 girls. Where are the girls? They've been killed. So if they survive their birth, they still enter a world wherein quite often if there's food for half the children, the boys get the food. If the family can afford the education of one child, the boy gets the education. And the girls grow up in a society where quite often they are deprived of, again, basic freedom. Because when they reach the age of sometimes eight years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, their families uh, sell them to a marriage broker and they are married to a man sometimes 40 or 50 years old who might already have two or three wives. And they live a life of uh, slavery or deprivation or sexual abuse. In many countries on earth now, if a girl is raped by a stranger, She's condemned by her own family as having brought a disgrace to the mother and father and brothers. And she's murdered by her own family. In Egypt, 25% of the murders are perpetrated by the mothers, most of them by the father and the uncle. Increasingly, though, where the laws are becoming enforced, the young brother kills his sister. 
because being less than 18 years old, he might not have to go to prison if there is a law to enforce it. So we know these things happen. And they've been happening for generations. One reason that they happen is because people are religious. And they interpret Holy Scripture by carefully selecting verses in the Bible or the Quran to show that men are superior in the eyes of God. And if a woman is inferior in the eyes of God, she is subject to abuse by her husband. And she's also subject to getting paid less than a man to do the same work by her employer. And she's deprived of a right to education and so forth, even in advanced societies. One of the most encouraging things that we've seen in the last year has been a stirring of correction of this situation in the Islamic community among Muslims. We had a large outturn in this last two or three days of uh, religious leaders from Africa and other countries. And um, some of the leaders of the Sunni Muslims in Egypt uh, have taken on this as a project to show that in balance the Koran ordains that women are equal to men. We have a ways to go in the Christian community. And lately, particularly I'd say since 9-11, violence has become just ordinary. Our country has been almost constantly at war since the uh, Second World War. 33 different countries we've been at war with. It's just an accepted fact. And the final thing I'll say is that if you could take just a small portion of this total amount of money we spend just on obsolete weapons and weapons that we'll never use, you could educate completely every girl, child in the world. It's a sobering thought. But we are the ones who set the priorities. Should we educate our children? Or should we buy more weapons? Those are the kind of things that we've been addressing. And the main thing we're going to get to a little bit later is how much we need women to be deeply involved, as the United Nations mandates, in the negotiation of peace agreements. And how different a woman's perspective is about what is peace and what does it mean to my family and, and my neighbors. Well, that's a perfect way to ask Aisha to talk about what's happening in Nigeria. Aisha works uh, on a range of issues affecting violence against women in Nigeria, but also on peace and security and how to go about it. Aisha, how do you see this, this going? How do you see the balance between emergency, taking care of the immediate? You've been working on the, the missing Chibok girls, the case of the missing Chibok girls. It's so tragic and horrible, and, and I think I, I could speak for a lot of people when I say, yay, send in the Marines, go get them, you know, go get those girls, because if they could, then that's what I would want. So 
what, what, what's the answer? What do you see as the way we're going to both take care of the immediate, but also look at the broader causes, the root causes that lead to this? Thank you for that, Karen. Good evening. I'd like to start with saying I'm really grateful to President Carter and the Carter Center for making this opportunity available for us to talk about what matters to us the most. Um, I would say in Nigeria that really the two biggest threats to peace right now, and then segue into thinking what I think would be the answers. Uh, one is obviously insecurity and Boko Haram, and two is the way we practice democracy in Nigeria. Um, and what we see as the lack of diligent governance. So making the link between the two, what is it about us in Nigeria that makes a Boko Haram possible? How have we created the environment where a Boko Haram could thrive and have been attacking people for over five years? Last year alone, we lost 10,000 people, and I'm sure that's a conservative estimate. And right now we have 1.5 million internally displaced people um, within the country and spilling outside the borders of Chad and Niger. So when you think about it, is the lack of justice uh, an inability to provide basic services for people that allows think terrorist groups like Boko Haram to begin in the first place because they now have to come in to fill in the gap that's been left by governance, by people who have no education, no water, no employment. They're suffering from drying up of the waters, um, desertification, they can't farm as much as possible, and they're left very little. And then you find that because of our practice of democracy, we cannot change the people in power. And if anybody's been following Nigerian politics over the last few days, we were set to have elections in Saturday, and we've now postponed it by six weeks, ostensibly to allow the military to fight Boko Haram, who've been terrorizing us for the last four or five years. So for me, that's the link. Uh, in terms of the Chibok girls, we see, again, the Chibok girls are tied to the whole situation of, of bad governance. So, for example, the Chibok girls are in a school far away with very little security, even though the school is in a state that's under a state of emergency. One of the three states where the federal government has said, this is where Boko Haram is striking the most, and we need to provide more security. We have the army there, so how could this happen? But the thing is, the Chibok girls who have been missing now for 300 and two days, I think, yes. It was 300 days on February 8th, so today is 302 days that they've been missing. Um, they're symbolic, really, for the hundreds of women who were taken before they were taken in April, and for the many hundreds more who were taken after. So it's a continuous thing, but the girls from Chibok are just symbolic for all the missing girls and the women in Nigeria who've been taken by the terrorists or killed by the terrorists. Um, and so you ask yourself, and all the questions we're asking ourselves about that particular situation, why, do you have, why is it impossible to secure people? Why do you have schools that have no gates and no security? And it's all tied to the governance that I talked about. You, you have a government that can't provide basic services. And again, when election cycle comes up every four years, it's almost impossible to remove these people. And so it's a perpetuating cycle that allows the terrorist groups like Boko Haram to thrive to even find the space to start saying, you know what, you live in an unjust society. And that's how Boko Haram started um, in 2008, by telling the people of Brno, you know what, your government isn't working for you. Come to us. You know, we, will, we will provide these services that are missing. And, that, and really, initially, they started out peacefully. And then what did we do? We turned to violence. The state turned to violence to deal with... They didn't like the message. 
Yes, yeah, so the message was a bit confrontational, but the Boko Haram wasn't being violent at that time. It was the state that turned them violent by attacking them. And this is what we've been talking about for the past four days. Violence begets violence. And it's just escalated to the point where now we're literally hostages in, in the country and there seems to be no solution. And as you said, the response has been more violence. But where do we break that cycle and say, you know what, one of the fundamental reasons for this violence is an inability for us as citizens to be able to choose the leaders that we want and to be able to hold those leaders accountable and to be able to say to them after four years, you know what, you've messed up, go. We can't do that. We go through these pretenses of democracy and voting, but the whole system is rigged. And people feel this frustration. It was a Nigerian that said, you know, if you make peaceful change, impossible. You make violent change inevitable. That is what we're seeing. It's not to excuse Boko Haram, but it's to help us contextualize the fact that even if you deal with Boko Haram today and manage to kill all of them and get rid of them, in a few years, another type of Boko Haram will start again because you've not dealt with the underlying issues. Um, so for me, in the work that I do, I really do think that the voices of women make a difference to help tone down the rhetoric, to, to talk about the alternatives to violence and oppression. Uh, and that's where we try to focus on girls and we say, you know what, this is, th these are the future, these are the kind of people that we want to groom. But if you can't send girls to school, as we're seeing with girls in Chibok, where do you find this future stock of leaders who will hopefully be at the table when decisions are being taken? So it's almost like a vicious circle. You want to groom young girls who are educated and confident and can take their place in the world. But from a very young age, they are denied access to education, either because of culture or because of bad services, because the truth is Nigeria right now has 10.5 million out-of-school children, one of the highest in the world, and 60% are young girls. But some of the reasons why people are not going to school is not because people don't value education, it's just because the schools are broken, the teachers are not qualified, the teachers are raping, the, the students are raping, um, the schools have no toilets. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people will say, you know what, I'll just keep her at home, she's safer. And that leads to early marriage for some people. It's not to condone it, but it's to say, you know, we're, we're trying to spend millions and billions fighting girl-child marriage. But one of the reasons why there is is because people have daughters. They're not killing them and murdering them at an early age, but they're alive. They don't know what to do with them. They can't go to school. They're not skilled. They can't earn money. They get married. And in my work, I've had to deal with, for example, Oh, sorry. going a slightly <laughs> Okay, sure. Because I know, once and it starts coming... I know, but just, just quick, very quickly, so I just say, to, for me, the hope is that, for example, the people who are campaigning for Bring Back Our Girls, which, for the Chipok Girls, have been sitting out for over 200 days, and these were driven by women. It was started by women, and it's being driven by women, and largely women who are sitting down every single day between two to four to say, you know, holding the government accountable, trying to bring them to the table and say, you know what, find these girls. So for me, that's where, again, we show that women have agency and we should allow more women into the world. That's into, great. Into You've given us quite an overview of the situation. And Allah Murabit, please talk to us about the situation in Libya. I mean, I, I'm listening, I see, I'm, I'm hearing some parallels here with, you know, underlying causes. And, you know, from here, we look at Libya and we think, you know, it just looks so, so um, like it's un sort of coming apart. 
tell us you've been through the revolution, you've been there, you've been trying to advance women's rights, you've been working with religious leaders, you've been even talking to the militias. Tell us, you know, how do, how do these things work together? How do we do both of these? Well, um, first, hello, and thank you all for coming, and thank you for having me. Um, I think Libya and Nigeria and, and I, most conflict uh, countries in the world actually share a very same pattern, and that is that insecurity leads to a vacuum. It leads to a vacuum of political power, and obviously it leads to the negation of women's rights because women's rights are put on the back burner. Women's rights tend to end when wars begin. And when, in Libya, what we realized was there is the question of what do you focus on first? Do you focus on the short term and the immediate? Because you don't want to talk about uh, legalization and, and, and changing policy when some women can't feed their kids. It's not a relevant conversation to them. It's not something they feel impassioned about. And at the same time, you don't want to be in that same situation in 10 years. So you want to wonder about what are you going to do in the long term? Long term what are you going to prioritize? And so my organization, The Voice of Libyan Women, which we founded after doing work throughout the revolution and was inspired by the work that women did throughout the revolution, that in times of severe security crisis, it was women who took on a leading role, focuses on these two, these two streams in parallel. So in the short term, we do focus quite heavily on education, and we do focus quite heavily on the security crisis and on addressing security, and women in particular and their role in peace and security. But in the long term, we focus a lot on social change. And in the first year of the organization, we did this initially by talking about international conventions, because this is what we knew. And very quickly, a lot of Libyan citizens said to us, what are you talking to me about international law for? I haven't had local law for 42 years. Like, what are you? So we began to realize that what works, I think, in our own homes is if somebody speaks to us while addressing our values, working within our own belief system. And a lot of the values, a lot of the kind of cultural norms in Libya have been established through religious influence. So culture, while not while defining what happens in daily life is not necessarily religion, but is excused by it. So someone will do something and say, well, it's religious. And if God says it, then that's the law. So at that point, we thought as an organization, the only way to change this dynamic was to address these same religious scriptures. So what other groups were using to say women don't have a place <coughs> in education, in economy, in policy, even in basic social life, we were saying, no, they do have a place. And this is the evidence from our holy book. And this is the evidence from the sayings of the prophet, peace be upon him. Um, and so what we did was we worked with our religious institution. We worked with local imams. We went into schools and started with kids in primary school because we felt that that is the solution. It is very easy for us to, and, and I'll, I'll take this actually from my father, my father is, is very, much more difficult to convince than my siblings. And that's because he's very set in his ways. But the way to convince him is for him to have a conversation with his kids. Once his kids bring him information, he's much more open to it. And that, I think, is something that's reflected in all parents. When our kids go to school and they bring back something and they say, listen, today I learned that our faith teaches that I do have these rights. And that is proven there. That's a brochure that they take home to their mother. That opens a door for conversation. 
We supplemented this obviously through a lot of media and traditional media in Libya is stronger than things like social media because of our low internet penetration rates. So we used a lot of radio and billboards um, and, and we used a lot of the seminars reached over 50,000 people alone and it became the largest campaign in, in the country's history, government or civil society. And I think that for us, the reason we felt it was so necessary is because eventually long-term and short-term should merge. They should be the same thing. We shouldn't always have to put out fires. Eventually, if we're working on the long-term enough, in 30 years, we won't have that short-term crisis where we all need to be like, what are we gonna do? Do we have the resources? We need to create institutions and we need to create societies where those problems no longer exist. So yes, we do need to create the schools that lead to less girls getting married at young ages, that leads to less domestic violence, that leads to better maternal mortality. We need to do this now. So I, I think the question of short-term and long-term is extremely relevant, and that up until now, I don't think any of us have prioritized the long-term enough. We're very reactionary when it comes to women, peace, and security. Um, and the one thing I'll kind of leave off on is we were doing a security assessment in Libya. And uh, we went up to the mountains, which are very rural. And I asked the women, women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, about security. And one of the women looks at me and says, I will describe to you how I feel on a daily basis. In Libya, the boys drive very fast. Anyone who's been to Italy or like Europe knows that they drive very quickly. I think even here in Atlanta, you have some people who speed. <laughs> so, so she said, for me, security is like being in the passenger seat of my son's car as he goes 120. I don't have a seatbelt on. And all I can do is hold on to the door and pray and pray <laughs> and pray. But he, he's sure. He's holding the steering wheel and he's 100% sure. Because his, it's his foot on the gas and he knows when to brake. So when, every time he walks out of my house, that is how I feel. I feel like I'm in the passenger seat of a car and I have no control. And I feel like that, to me, was kind of the moment where I thought we need to start talking about women's role in security, because as it is now, they are the ones losing the most. Well, that's a perfect segue to Sanam, who's been working on, on advancing the role of women in peace and security. How do these go together? What do you see as the opportunity for short-term, long-term doing both? The reason why I was inspired to do this work, in part, was my own experience. I was 11 when we had the revolution, and my father was stuck in Iran. My mother ended up in England with us, and we saw many people with that experience. And my mom was 42. She didn't, know, she didn't actually know how to cook, which was interesting, because she used to work in a university, and you know, we had a cook. That was the way life was. And, and I saw her learning how to cope and having to deal with this change. And around us, more and more, we saw that the women were able to adapt and use skills and, and cope with the crisis, whereas the men were having a really hard time in kind of reasserting, you know, they used to be Mr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so or Engineer So-and-so, and all of a sudden there were refugees. And by the way, when you're a refugee, you lose all your identity. You are no longer the educated person that you were. You're just a refugee. You're not even allowed to work in the countries where you, where you get asylum. So for me, the, the idea of women taking on a role and having a voice was something I grew up with. Um, and then in, when I started working on peace and security issues, uh, we were looking at the changed nature of war, the, the fact that so many of the conflicts we do see are internal, they're within countries. But we have an international system that helps us deal with 
interstate conflicts. So at the UN, you know, if you have two countries fighting each other, there's a whole system in place to deal with it. But if it's a conflict within a country, you have rules that say you're not allowed to interfere in the domestic affairs of a country. So we kept seeing countries getting into a bad, bad place, and the, everybody was just watching. You know, we kind of was like, you know, Congo, off it goes, even though we had early warning signs, or Kosovo, or any of these places. And we started, in, in 1996, we started looking at what women, are, what women are experiencing. And it was extraordinary to see that literally at the front lines, when crisis happens, whether they like it or not, whether, whether it's something that they wanted to do or not, they're standing up, they're looking after the kids, they're having to protect people. They are the ones who end up reaching out and working across the lines of division. And then we, we sort of started looking at this worldwide. And it was like, look, in Northern Ireland, Catholic and Protestant women. In Israel and Palestine, Israeli and Palestinian women. In Rwanda, Hutu and Tutsi women. Four years after the genocide, there was a woman who stood in, in London at a meeting and she said, we need peace and reconciliation. She had lost 100 relatives. And, and this to me was, was another moment because I don't know whether I would have that strength. If I had lost so much of, of so many of my relatives, would I be able to stand up and say I want peace? Or would I be depressed and, or would I get angry? And so, so I, I became interested in this idea that, you know, ordinary women or under extraordinary circumstances, ordinary people rise up. And why shouldn't we have their voices in peacemaking? They are living by example every day. You go to Somalia, for 20 years, women have been running the markets, they've been running their families, they're negotiating with the extremists, they're opening hospitals and airports, mm -hmm. and yet you come to the international community and they'll tell you things out of sheer ignorance. They'll say, oh, the women of this country, and you can put it, the women of Nigeria, the women of Libya, the women of Iran, the women of Afghanistan, it's a conservative country, the women have no role. We are assuming this for them, we're not actually talking to them and letting them have a say. So that was, that was the impetus for me, and, and we worked to get the Security Council resolution because the UN belongs to all of us. It, it's we, the peoples of the United Nations, it's not, you know, we the member states. And we wanted the voice of ordinary people to be heard at the Security Council because that piece of that, that resolution is a piece of law. And it's something that everybody can, um, can hook onto and say, I have a right. I have a right to be, um, to have a voice. So, and, and why are we just letting the guys with the guns sit at the table and decide the future? They've been destroying and now they get to decide the future? Right. You know, they get to ha have power when women have all the responsibility. It just, it's just totally illogical. It, it's, it just doesn't yeah. make sense. I mean, think about it. It just yeah. doesn't make sense. Well, one, it was great. One of our guests, Timothy Najoya from, and I just have, I want to ask a question. Can you all hear Sanam? I wasn't sure that her mic was reaching. Uh, maybe if, if we can have our sound people look at Sanam's microphone. Um, one of our guests, uh, Timothy Najoya from Kenya, he made this great point, I mean, it's not, a, it's not great, it's, it's just very salient, that women are caught between uh, men's war for power, that women are the collateral damage in this men's fight over control, and that what Sanam and Allah and Aisha are talking about is 
women collecting their voices, because it's not about a woman. It's not about we have a woman president or a woman secretary of state or a woman, although we heard a pretty awesome woman senator yesterday. I have to say, Kirsten Gillibrand really knocked everybody's socks off, and it made you think, wow, if we have more of that kind of woman in power, then we can get somewhere. So it's not just a woman. It's a woman who really digs into the collective lived experience of women that we've all been hearing about and says, these are the issues. And what Timothy was saying is that that is what has to come out between, to, to, to stop this war between men over power, stop making them collateral damage um, over this war between power. So President Carter, what do you think is the obstacle you know, the, the men with, the, somebody else said, the price to admission into a peace negotiation is guns. Because, yes, you've, but you've had to negotiate with, with all kinds of people, right? Yeah. Extremists, <clears throat> people on terrorist lists. And when you're, if you could talk to us about that, what that's like when you know, I have spoilers. I have, I know I need that person at the table because they're the one who can actually keep the war going. Charles Taylor is an example, 1997, right? So how do we both look at that, where you get the spoilers there, but also force open the space so that the women's voices who are there just don't have a hearing? How can we do that? What could we do about that? Well, the men have the power now. And it's a human nature not to give up power once you get it. We went through this uh, exact same thing in the South when I was a child. There were a lot of white people, friends of ours, who thought that um, persecution of black people was wrong. But they didn't want to do anything about it. Because the white folks got the best jobs. The white kids went to the best schools. The white people got the best um, medical care. Uh, the white people could vote. The white people could uh, serve on a jury. The blacks couldn't. And subliminally, the black people, the white people in, le in the leadership roles didn't want to give it up. We didn't want to give equal opportunity to, in Plains, Georgia, a majority of our citizens. So we delayed it as long as possible. And the same exact thing is happening now. A lot of men, maybe some in this audience, a lot in that audience say we ought to give completely equal rights to women. But when it comes down to giving up what we have as privileges, we're reluctant to do so because we don't want to be challenged uh, for the top positions in universities and the top positions in government and the top positions in commerce and trade and in politics. So that's an inherent problem that we're having in this country and around the world. And one of the key Focal points that I think is perhaps the most influential of all is the one I mentioned a little bit earlier, and that is in religion. White men for the last 1,700 years or so in Christianity have had the leadership role. And they have ordained by carefully selecting a few of the 34,000 verses in the Bible, certain verses that say that women shouldn't do this or that. And so they maintain that as uh, coming from God. 
and that God really didn't want to create women equally. He made a woman out of uh, Adam's rib. It's quite, a, quite different in the first chapter of Genesis, but, but that's the one that we choose. And so the same thing happens in Buddhism and the same thing happens in Islam. Uh, when I was in Myanmar not too long ago in former Burma, we met with, with the leaders of all the denominations, all the religions, including uh, Christianity and, and Islam and also Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism. And every one of them would say, well, in our religion, women are equal, but they're not the same. Women are different, and they need to be treated different. That means different by treating them inferior. And so that's an inherent problem that we have here. And, and of course, with men in control, uh, then that makes violence rampant and uh, the resort to war and conflict. And so we don't want women to be directly involved in negotiating peace agreements because a, a woman who looks at peace from a perspective of a family or her own children or her own neighbors has a much greater ability to see the horrors of war and the benefits of peace than someone who is maybe benefiting financially from the manufacture and sale of weapons or the arrogance that comes with uh, military superiority. So those are the things that, that we have to change. And, and I think that the, this group that we've had here are the ones that can give that message. Increasingly, uh, I think that uh, opinions are changing, but it's very, very slow. It's very slow. And allow, talk about, because, and I have a question here that relates to that from the audience, that religion is often used in this way that uh, uh, President Carter talked about. And, asking how do we make the space for those moderate voices? We had a debate here all for four days over whether religion can be turned around in a positive way. And you are working with religious actors. We've decided to use the word religious actors as opposed to religious leaders, I think, right, Marla? Um, so um, because religious leaders often are part of institutions that are very entrenched and vested in a certain status quo. So religious actors are President Carter, who's a religious person, who speaks out. Um, so how have you reached out to religious actors in order to create, you know, we, we also said that the, the extremists, they're the loudest, and they take up all this oxygen and airwaves. How have you given space and made it possible for those with those progressive, more progressive, or changeable positions to come forward and be more active? Well, I think for me, um, a lot of the work I do is actually inspired by the family in which I was raised. So I was raised by two religious actors, let's call them, um, very religious parents, and they raised 11 kids. Of these 11 kids, six girls, five boys. And my father, since I was very young, my parents, have always prioritized education. They've prioritized kindness. They've told you to be ambitious. They told you to be hardworking. They never told me to be less than my brothers. The exact opposite. My brothers will tell you we were treated better because we did better in school. Um, this is a family truth. So, so for me, that was always the reality I came from. I never came from a reality where my faith taught me to be less. I came from a reality of parents who prayed and, and in my opinion, did exactly as, as my Quran and my, my faith teach me that women are to be treated with respect, to the point where there's uh, a saying of the prophet that for a father who, who ensures his daughter's education and access to education, he himself will stand in front of the gates of fire for that man. Like, he will open the doors to heaven. That is a big thing. 
So when I moved to Libya when I was 15, and I started going to university there, society clear, quickly taught me that my worth as a person was less, regardless of, of my knowledge, regardless of my merit, but simply because I was a woman. So for example, a professor would say, what are you going to do with your degree anyways? It's just going to be hung on the wall. There's no need to get every question right. Um, and, and girls could not be on the student council and so on. So opening that space, I think, for moderate thinkers comes not, in my opinion, they don't even have to be moderate thinkers. They just have to be given permission to think about, like, on their own. They should not, nobody should be told how they should perceive faith. So my father, I think, has set an example for his whole family on how to raise girls. And for our community, I'm able to do the work I do in a very conservative city because my father from day one stood up and said, I'm proud of this work. I support this work. And I think that's the power of one person. So it shouldn't be how many. It shouldn't be, should we go get an institution? It should be, let's find the people who are supporting their daughters. Let's find the people who are, for example, like President Carter. Let's find the people who are using their voices. And let's amplify those. And I'm going to go back to Aisha first, because I want to hear, like, in this challenging context, how, do, how are women in Nigeria also pushing through this? And I think this, this point of, of, of fathers and allies in men is, is extremely important. So you mentioned earlier that the women are demonstrating for the Chibok girls. But how do we, we also know that, the, that a certain female leader, not to be mentioned, was sort of undermining that. So how can women sort of collect and how can we help? Because one of the things we want to talk about is what kind of global solidarity and, and support can we offer to the women in Nigeria who are really trying to get to the root of this? I think very quickly, like most people that organize, you find people that feel the same way that you do about an issue. So we have very strong networks of gender advocates who believe in girls' education, who believe in that young girls should be married at a young age, and we share information with each other. Um, we also share information with Musawa. So for example, because everything is happening in the north, um, there's obviously religious um, undertones to it. So trying to expand the interpretation of Sharia, we, we, we work a lot with Musawa and get different types of interpretations. So a lot like what Allah is doing, but not on her scale, which it's hearing about that is very encouraging. It's something that we should take back. But also trying to see, democratize the interpretation of religion. In Nigeria, we learn the Quran in Arabic, but we don't speak Arabic. So basically what we're doing is just memorizing verses that we don't know what they mean. And so helping people to understand what these verses are saying about peace and about women will be useful. So in terms of thinking about how to help these women, how do we expand communication? Like for every project that we do, whether it's UN funded, very little goes to communication in terms of how to expand the messaging. How do people on the streets in the rural areas hear this message through, as she said, radio. Radio is fantastic in Nigeria. Everybody listens to the radio, at least 60, 70%, especially in the north. How do we get these messages on radio? All these cost money. So for me, one quick way, while schools are under threat, while people can't go to school, but they listen to, even the women are listening to radio as they're sweeping and cooking, how can we have these types of messages, even in forms of drama, out there in the radio in local languages so people are listening and hearing and understanding and just changing the narrative around what they think they know about what they've been told by religious actors who, as we've already pointed out, want to maintain status quo. 
So obviously the interpretation of religion to the masses is always one that says, you know, power over, obey men, men have agency, women don't. How do we start changing that narrative? I think there's huge space for us to do that and that kind of support either from the international donor community or the Carter Center would be very useful. We talked a lot about that, about how we're going to support each other. Um, and Sanam, you know, you, I've heard you talk about how women's uh, voices in certain contexts like Syria were very different at the local level than what we might have heard here. Uh, and how, can you tell us about that also? How can those voices push through and reach us through the communication, if, through storytelling, through better, uh, better framing of, of the issues on the ground? And, and how do you see us getting there? Um, I sort of, when I, when I work with my partners I, I, and, and the people that we have on the panel, they're risking their lives every day on the ground for, for this. Those of us who work internationally, we're risking our sanity every day. <laughs> because frankly, we're trying to change these ridiculous bureaucracies and, and sort of butting up against systems and inertia. Um, it's not that, it, it's, at, at some level, it's not complex. It really is about individuals that are, um, uh, can you hear me? Can yeah. you hear Sanam in the back? Yeah, okay, yeah. good, go You ahead. can't hear me up back there? Okay. It really is about saying, you know, do we have the right people in place? Because one Mary Robinson makes a world of difference just right. by virtue of her attitude. One President Carter can make a world of difference. But one, and I can name, name the endless, endless men <laughs> who have had these positions who just block it because they just block it. So, so part of our job has to be to push against those and find the entry points and pro provide the spaces where our partners can come. And then to, you know, and it, 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 the challenge is this, it's not just stories. Because if we, liked, we like stories because that's how we remember things. But it's about knowledge and expertise and analysis and understanding of really complicated root causes. And, and when you bring women to the table, they don't just talk about themselves. They'll talk about their sons, they'll talk about the husbands, they'll talk about the imam, they'll talk about, they know the whole community. Right? So they have an understanding which is much more complicated, but they're treated in this incredibly patronizing way. And, and that's, that's the challenge and frustration. Can you give an example of that? Um, examples of, you know, for example, we were, I've, been, I've been working with Syrian women for a long time. Uh, I mean, since, since the conflict started. Actually, Libyan women. I was, I was working um, uh, within the, the international system, and the Libya crisis started. We knew that Libyan women were at the forefront of a lot of the revolution work. I had a colleague who was sent out to identify and just do a mapping of, you know, talk to people, basically. We gave them a list of the names of Libyan women that were prominent and were active. And he went off and he came back and he came back with a pile this thick of all the notes of meetings that he'd had. And I read through all of them and same stuff. So one guy after another saying, I said, what about the women? And he says, I met with the women, they're fine. I said, what do you mean they're fine? Because, oh, they're fine. They think their constitution is fine. Everything's fine. They don't, they, they're, they're not a problem. And I said, but did you talk to them about what's going to happen? Did you talk to them about the fact that we are seeing the rise of Islamists in, in Libya? He never wrote up the notes. So the meeting, if he had it, was completely erased from, from any of the discussions. 
And subsequently, when we said, why do we not have Libyan women coming into these international spaces? We, as an international community, spent a billion dollars getting rid of Gaddafi, and we anointed the leadership. We created that leadership. And when we said Libyan women, they were telling us, oh no, Libyan, it's too dangerous. Too dangerous to bring Libyan women. So, so this erasing of the women's story, and I mean, I can play it. We can have our little quiz here as well, but, but the erasing of women women's activism um, throughout history for peace and, and, and these issues is systematic and it's something that we have to, we have to change. Well, I wanted to get in on that one. <laughs> to follow up because we had, um, so we have the international community which had been in Libya and it was 2012 and my organization said, listen, we cannot focus only on international law. This is not a country that has that background right now. And we said we need to start talking about more traditional understandings of human rights. And, and we need to really start talking about changing kind of the cultural understanding. And they told us, we don't really think that's a good idea. We're going to continue to work in our stream and on our, our parallel. And after two years, they then came back and said, OK, so maybe your idea had some merit. But we don't really remember what you guys said specifically. So, so I completely see where she's coming from in the sense that when you talk to, I think, I think none of us can say that a man with a gun is not terrifying, right? Like we all, we all agree that that is, that is a direct threat. We're all very scared and we all understand the importance of meeting with them or of having an open dialogue with them in hopes that they will stop fighting. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that when those men are out with guns, women are the ones who are in the community. Women are the ones who are in the schools. Women are the ones who are in the hospitals and they have a very good knowledge of what's going on in that community and where you could potentially build alliances or where you could potentially work to ensure that transitional justice happens or reconciliation happens. So I think it's important for us to identify with the fact that women are community leaders and we don't look at them like that. We look at them as victims and we look at them as, you know, oh, these poor women. Well, when the war's over, we'll focus on you. We'll get there. So I genuinely think that if we start looking at women as integral parts of the peace process, as community leaders, as security leaders, then we'd have a very, very different narrative. So I wanted to just, just, just quickly one, reply. When, when, <laughs> just one thought that, that the other thing that, that, I, that I heard from this chap was, um, he, he said, well, you know, the bombs were dropping. The bombs were dropping. And I was like, yes, and they were dropping on the women as well as, I mean, it's not as if when bombs drop, the women disappear. It, it's, <laughs> they are there also. So it's just, that's the level of patronize. It's, it's this extraordinary kind of, a deep sexism and patronizing kind of norm that, that is, is very pervasive in these institutions. And it can be, frankly, any international uh, actor that goes out there. So one suggestion that was made, President Carter, maybe you could comment on this at the meeting, um, was, and, and we've already decided to put up together a little committee to work on this, is that, uh, that we need to, whenever there's a conflict or pre-conflict, I mean, we, want, we really need to start earlier pre-conflict, before things erupt, is to figure out how to make sure that with the men in power, the UN, in the State Department, whatever, that we actively engage them to challenge and create an opening and space for the women that Sanam was talking about, the women that Aisha is talking about, the women that Ella are talking about, and help organize it. Uh, because there was one group of women who were saying, Sanam told the story, that, that were the diasporan Syrians who were saying, yes, bomb. The women on the ground were saying, no, please don't bomb. 
So it matters who you're bringing. So how do you think we might be able to, if it, can we get in this year of the review of this resolution, can we get the Security Council, but also the governments, because it's not just the Security Council, it's also bilaterals and State Department by itself, to make a new commitment. How do you think we could achieve that if we say, all right, you've given lip service to 1325, to women in peace. We are going to bring you a group of women that through our networks we know are in touch with what's happening, and we're going to organize a meeting and invite you to come. Will you make those phone calls to get those people to that meeting and ask all your friends on the elders and everything to help us make sure that happens? Well, as a matter of fact, this is exactly what we did 15 years ago. Right. Uh, at that time, the world government passed a firm law with no escape clauses in it, that whenever there is a peace agreement negotiated in the world, that women have to be prominently involved in the discussions. That's been the law now for 15 years. That's a law of the world. And um, the step that needs to be taken is to get the United Nations Secretary General and all of his mostly male helpers and the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain and the President of France and the Chancellor of Germany and others to enforce the law we already, ha already have. And I don't think there's any doubt that women can be deeply involved right away in the putting together of a complex peace negotiation. When I negotiated with Kim Il-sung in 1994 in uh, North Korea, I had a very able assistant with me. And when I negotiated with Karadzic uh, in trying to end the war uh, in the Central Europe, and Mladic, both of whom are in, on trial now, I had a very able assistant with me. And when I had a, uh, a negotiation with al-Bashir in um, Sudan with the leader of the South Sudanese Revolutionaries, John Garang, I had a very able assistant with me. Her name was Rosalind Smith Carter. <laughs> and, and she was there as a, as a major player advising me and also reaching out to women in the surrounding community to help us to bring peace. And I would say that John Garang's widow, once he was killed, uh, was a key player in putting together the peace agreement that has led to the establishment of a, of a new government. So there's no doubt now that we have the women available who are capable. The women have a special perspective. They really want peace instead of war. And we have the law on the books. I don't think we could improve on 1325. It's just very clear right. and unequivocal. So we need to just enforce the law we have. But I think the thing to do is for all of us to demand yes. that it be done. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, <laughs> And uh, Sanam is, and Jessica Newirth and all of our team are going to come up with, with a couple of ideas. So I have a, a few questions from the audience. Um, five uh, minutes. Uh, five minutes? Is it 10 after already? Oh, no. it's 10. Three. No, it's, it's uh, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Don't. All right. Okay. Ahead. 
So, but the first thing I'm, I'm going to do, and it's going to be quick. You said in an earlier interview that um, if we only took a fraction of the money that we spend on uh, obsolete weapon systems, um, we could educate all the girls. So let's say a trillion dollars for to upgrade the nuclear arsenal that we hope never to use. A over 10 years is, gonna, is the estimate. If we had a trillion dollars, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to say what you would spend it on. Trillion dollars. Spend it. I well, thank you first. <laughs> um, I come from a health background, so I, I obviously believe very strongly that uh, prioritizing health is very important, but then from the work that we've done in Libya, I think education. And I think a trillion dollars, if you're giving me that much, I'd plug a lot of it into media as well. Yeah, so okay. ensuring that messages were disseminated to everyone, um, putting it on the radio for those who can't read, having younger generation have new and innovative ways where they had to critically think and approach th matters such as faith and spirituality and, and women's rights and even animal rights and all these you know different things uh, much more openly. So okay. health and education. Health and education. So no, 30 seconds. I would, um, so I, I look at it this way, that because the challenge of our age is how do you recognize and respect diversity at the same time as maintaining social cohesion in our countries, whether it's here in Europe or anywhere else, I would set up, go, go about setting up national social service for young people, mm -hmm. where you would mix people up in units, men and women, young, you know, boys and girls, from when they leave school, so gap year, um, from different socioeconomic, e ethnic, religious, geographic backgrounds, give them a choice of doing environmental work or, so, or education work or health work or emergency response work, get them to understand each other's cultures within their own countries, teach life skills if they need numeracy and literacy skills, get them to do that, get, give them space to have fun but learn skills and, and feel that they're actually contributing to their country mm -hmm. so that after they're done with that, they really have a strong bond of who they are as a nation and an identity and a sense of responsibility to each other so that as they go through life, A, they have each other and B, if they end up with a politician who says, Oh no, you know, the green people of that region are really bad and evil. Mm -hmm. um, you've been kind of inoculated against it because you know you've got a bunch of green friends, basically. And, and it's hard to, you know, say your green friends are evil. So, yeah, yeah. So a trillion dollars will pay so, for a lot of so boys after school. Yeah, yeah every, every country in the world should have that. That's the infrastructure of peace for the country. Infrastructure of peace. For the 21st century. The infrastructure of peace. I like that very much. Aisha, a trillion dollars, spend it. I have to say, first of all, we already have something called NYSC, where we do exactly that. It's one year, and it's everybody. I would spend a third on education. Um, I would spend a third on media and communications, and I would spend a third on building institutions. We really need to improve our justice system. We really need to improve the response of our security agencies, like the Nigerian police force, to um, gender-based violence and domestic violence. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. So I would spend a lot of money there as well. We just need to strengthen our institutions to protect more women and children. That's right. Human rights, governance. President Carter, mm -hmm. where, how would you... Uh, you were a chief, chief, chief executive once. If you had a trillion dollars <laughs> to spend on peace... I didn't have that much, but go ahead. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the infrastructure of peace... What would you spend it on? Well, I think what the Carter Center does is probably the best judgment that Rosa so and I So for the Carter Center, a grant years. to the Carter Center? Well, <laughs> no, but I think human rights, yeah. uh, which would include peace and, and education and, um, and health. And so those are the three things on which we work. Yeah. 
We spend about 65% of all of our money on, on uh, health care, and we spend uh, the rest of it on democracy and freedom and, uh, and peace. So I think that's, that's it. It's just we should place. And um, I have a couple of questions here um, from the audience. One is about how can youth, particularly high school students, move actively to combat discrimination within their, our communities, peer groups, and schools? Let's say right here in the United States. Um, Allah. I actually Good think people. youth is, is probably the best time, well, when you're younger is the best time to start, but youth in high school is actually a time where you'll find quite a bit of bullying and. Um, and I do think that just standing up for somebody else is probably a good way to do it. I mean, when people ask me how can I get involved, they're all like, well, I can't start my own organization and I don't want to move to Africa. And honestly, it's quite simple. In your own community, do something. Be a person that you would want if you were being insulted, if you were being made fun of, if you were being ridiculed. If you see another boy being called an inappropriate word, if you see a girl being insulted because of her gender or because of her background, then say something. And I think that that, I, I think creating that society is what can change. Mm -hmm. um, and I really quickly, as, as I have the mic right now, I do want to make a comment about one thing, and that is the power of m m partnership when it comes to women's rights. And, and the reason I say that is because a lot of times there's this misconception that women are going to achieve women's rights on their own. And I'm really glad to see a lot of men here because that's not true. Women need other women. They need men. There needs to be government involvement. There needs to be military involvement. All of these structures need to come together to ensure that women's rights is achieved. And for the men who are supportive, like my father and like the men in this room and like President Carter, I do think we need to spotlight that much more. I do think we need to say, not only, well, not thank you, because you know, you're, you have to, but, um, <laughs> but I, think, I think we do need to show that appreciation because that partnership is essential. We cannot do this on our own, or we could, but it would take us much longer. Um, and, and I do think that that's something that's always kind of never set at these, these kind of events. So, I so I'm going to add that. the youth question to each of you, because I mean, in each of the following questions. So when you answer me, add a sentence for youth, because I think that is the generation we need to be thinking about for the long term um, to be in, exciting them. I have a question for Aisha Osori. Um, do you feel that the international community should be putting more pressure on the Nigerian government to rescue the girls? Uh, captured by Boko Haram? If so, what can we do? And just as you're answering the question as well, we, uh, the United States government provides military assistance to the Nigerian government. How, and and do you have, what are your thoughts about that and how should it be used? Because sometimes military assistance might not get to where we think it's going. So what do you think? So this is a very complex question. And I'll be very honest. The reaction to the US military assistance has been mixed. On one hand, there's been people who, especially when it first happened. I mean, it's been almost a year now. So, But when it first happened, there was an urgency. And yes, we did want the US assistance. We did want the, the rest of the world to come in and find them. Um, but it's become a lot complicated over the last couple of months, especially with, I don't know how many people know about the arms deal and the fact that the U.S. is not allowing Nigeria to buy arms from them directly because of the track record of our, our army in terms of human rights and many implications by Amnesty International in terms of our army attacking civilians. So it's very complicated now. You have a, a mix in, 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 the, in the country about people who think, yes, we want U.S. military assistance and no, we don't want it. Um, personally, I would say, yes, we do want some sort of technical support. You know, you guys, on, in movies, you seem so great about finding things. Why can't we find those girls? You know, like, 
why can't we find those girls? Like, why can't we have private investigators come in and tell us where those girls are, you know? So f that would be really helpful. But definitely, this pressure would be great, especially mm -hmm. as we run into the elections. How, you know, how are we helping hold, help the Nigerians hold their government accountable? At the end of the day, the box stops there. You know, we watch all these Nigerian American movies and we know how it feels like to be one American who's missing in the wilderness and people will swoop down and save them. And we <laughs> want our governments to do that for us as well. Over the last five years, Nigeria has spent $32 billion on security. $32 billion on security and we have nothing to show for it. So instead of asking for more military assistance, you know, we would want, where did that money go? Wow. So, Sanam, I have a question. Do you have any guy? And for you and President Carter, I would say, what about ISIS? What to do? What's, do you have any guidance on how the U.S. can combat, combat ISIS more effectively? It's an interesting question, how the U.S. can combat ISIS effectively. So talk about that and noticing that there's this idea that the U.S. can <laughs> combat ISIS effectively. So I'm going to start with you, and I'd like President Carter to also comment on that one. Well, I, th I think um, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I feel really humble about addressing this because I think that by principle we should have the Syrians and the Iraqis here telling us. Yeah. But let me channel what, what they're telling us. Yeah. So number one, they'll tell you that, and I've, I've heard this multiple times, they will tell you that Assad um, does not bomb, has, did not bomb ISIS headquarters deliberately. He would bomb bread factories but ISIS headquarters would be left because it was to his advantage to have ISIS emerge because then you get the international community to focus on ISIS and not him, which is exactly what has happened. So, so that's number one, that, that this, is, this is a much more complicated, nuanced game that, that, that's going on. Number two, they'll tell you that ISIS in the same way as al-Shabaab in Somalia, um, basically or ISIS or al-Nusra as it was, was recruiting boys in, in displacement camps and refugee camps paying $400 a month because there were no schools, because the international community wasn't paying for the education of Syrian kids as they were becoming refugees and displaced, even though it's much cheaper to do that than, than to, to battle what, what we've been doing. So these kids don't have anywhere to go. There's no money for the families. And here comes somebody who says, I'll give you food, I'll give you money, I'll give you, uh, you know, give me your boys. And, and so the boys go that way, and the girls are being married off into, the, into Saudi Arabia or somewhere awful, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as, as, as kids. So, um, so you have this challenge of are we actually helping Syrian people on the ground who are being displaced to try and stem the flow into ISIS and, and these, these various extremist groups. And I think that that's really a critical issue that, that we, need to, we need to address. And, and, and recognize which of these people are Syrians and which of them are foreign fighters because there's, there's that big difference. The second thing is how are they getting in? You know, are they coming through the Turkish border? Why aren't the Turks doing anything about it? This is, Syria is experiencing multiple levels of war. And we have access to the Turks and the, and the Saudis and, and the regional players. Um, the Iran nuclear deal becomes important because if you get the new Iran nuclear deal, maybe Iran will be more amenable or more able to, to address the problem in Syria because actually they're on the same side as the US on the fight against ISIS. And they've been much more effective in Europe. So it's super complicated. super complicated. The women on the ground get it. They see it. They're living with this. And I would put them at the table next week in Washington when there is a White House summit on extremism. Bring the Iraqi and the Syrians to the table. And not just as a little token that we tick the box, but actually 
have them as part of these conversations ongoing and do what they tell us. Mm -hmm. Don't just say, oh yes, we heard you and, and carry on doing exactly what you're doing. <laughs> Five billion dollars we put for, for, for funding of fighting this stuff militarily. Where's the money for the, for the humanitarian and education and, and, and healthcare? Okay, so before you answer that, President Carter, I want to add an LS, a, a, a little bit of something to it. Mubin Sheikh, who is with us, who is a former radical himself, de-radicalized, um, now he's working to challenge radical extremists online and through, very interesting person. Um, he's told me last night that on 9-11 there were 5,000 Al-Qaeda, 5,000. Now we have al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, Shabab in Somalia, we have Boko Haram, we have see what happened in Mali, we see things popping up in, the, in Southeast Asia. So what to do about ISIS, but back up a little bit. What happened? How did 5,000 al-Qaeda who were very effective at hitting uh, the United States in a devastating way and pulling us into a conflict, how did that create you know, we can deal with ISIS, but you know, it seems like a whack-a-mole. Things are popping up in, in different places. How, first of all, what happened? How did we go from 5,000 Al-Qaeda to this metastasizing situation? Well, um, and, yeah. you have to remember that Al-Qaeda, to begin with, were the Mujahideen, or the freedom fighters in Afghanistan, whom we were supporting, so they would force the Soviet Union to leave Afghanistan. That's true. And so that was the origin of them. I think what Ruben said, uh, he was a young man that was with us the last two or three days with, uh, he's from Canada. And he was uh, known as a radical. And he was a radical, he says he's still a radical. But anyway, uh, he's called upon by Canadian parents to come in and minister to their young men who they believe have been converted to radical Islam. And he does this as a, volunteer job, he, gets, he doesn't get paid for it, and he has outside income from an NGO for $1,500 a month, he says, to pay his expenses. But, but, but I think every country now that we know about, Canada, the United States, uh, France, Great Britain, they have had young men going in to join ISIS, seduced by their news media and, and also by their social media, uh, who just want to participate in violence and brutality and executions appeal to them. And, and the degree to which they have been assimilated harmoniously into the local community is inversely proportional to how well they go to ISIS. In the United States, we've had very few Muslims who have gone through Turkey or however they get there to ISIS. They have a lot more in France because there's a lot more discrimination against Muslims in France. So I think that the approach that Ruben described to us is the best approach. I think we're going to have some young men, maybe kin to me and also in, in the Islamic communities, that have an appeal to go for an adventure to promote terrorism or do anything like that. But the more that they can feel that they're at home and they belong in a democracy where freedom and peace prevails, the better they're going to be prevented from going. And I think what Ruben has done has been a very eye-opening experience, I think, for all of us who heard yeah, him talk. Absolutely. Hello. I think, um, I think the reaction to 9-11 and the reaction to attacks is actually what spurred this mushroom. Um, because what has happened is rather than approach it by focusing on development and focusing on education and focusing on dialogue, the approach was military. It was very severe. And so first it 
it kind of solidified what people, what those groups were saying in their own communities of they're out to get us and they want to attack us. It completely decimated the infrastructure that did exist, so it created more of a security and political vacuum for more people to join these groups, and it made it almost the only economic option or, or kind of really gave a bit of prestige to that because then you could give to your family. But lastly, it also did something, I think, to local communities. As he was saying, it, it really, I think, ostracized Muslims in their own communities, be it in the United States, in France, etc. And it's created almost this where people question your identity. And I was telling them actually before the panel, I forgot to give proper change at a store when I was buying something. And I immediately thought to myself, oh my god, he's going to think I'm like a corrupt person. I'm trying to steal from him. And, and it's, it's kind of that thought process of, of really kind of not necessarily belonging and what it's done, I think, to create this kind of mushroom So I'm going to give Sanam the last word because we're out of time. Uh, wrap this up for us, Sanam, building on this, um, how they fit together. So two things. One is we, there's an act right now in, in Congress, the Women, Peace, and Security Act, and if we could get that passed, it would make a big change in the way the U.S. does its foreign policy. So write to your congressmen okay. and senators and get them to support the Women, Peace, and Security Act. It would be phenomenal. But um, on a, you know, one of the things for me, which, which is, and it's a really hard thing to do, but empathy. Next time you see an image of a man or a woman or a child in a war zone, imagine if that was you, if that was your child, if that was your father or your son. They are us. We are them. There's no difference. And, and so we have, to, we have to understand what drives people. Um, to do the kinds of things they do, whether it's joining ISIS or supporting them or, or, or being, having to live under them. I've interviewed gang members in Jamaica, in Kingston, and, and, I, asked, and I was asking them about what, what they wanted in their security and so forth, and I, and, and I said, do you have children? And, one of the, and they said, you know, any of them said yes, and I said, what do you want for your children? That starting point of what do you want for your children, I've had that conversation with Talib, with Somali elders, with gang members in, in Jamaica, and it's amazing how it opens up a human dialogue. And this gang member said to me, I want them to have good education, good table manners, and speak well. And I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. I mean, imagine, I've had that conversation. I mean, the Talib, it's the same thing. People want the same, they want dignity. And we have to start thinking about dealing with the world through a lens of empathy and through a lens of dignity and bringing putting the emphasis on trying to make peace rather than thinking that through war we're going to bring peace because that just that model just is not working. It's, it's doing a huge amount of damage. So I'm going to give the last word to President Carter. Well, let me um, describe the people we want in this audience to help us with this um, program. If you have a granddaughter, help us. If you have a daughter, help us. If you have a wife, help us. If you have a mother, help us. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't qualify can leave before I do. <laughs> we need the help of everybody in this audience to work on equal opportunity and an end of persecution and violation of the rights of women. That's what we're working for. We want all of you to help us. Thank you. Well, though that's all the time we have, and I would like to thank President Carter and our panelists for taking the time to be with us and all of you for your interest in our work. Um, I hope you'll join us a month from now when Conversations at the Carter Center series takes a look at peace in Liberia, speaking of peace in women, 10 years later. The center has been working in Liberia on an array of issues for more than two decades. 
And on March 10th, a panel moderated by WABE reporter Jim Burris will discuss Liberia's progress towards a sustainable peace since the end of the 14-year Civil War, progress that's been complicated by the recent Ebola crisis. That conversation will begin at 7 p.m. You can visit cartercenter.org to learn how you can make free reservations. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Good night. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.